Today, we say the function of a rational health care system is to provide quality care to all in a cost-effective way and not to continue a system which allows insurance companies and drug companies to make hundreds of billions of dollars in profits each year and to make healthcare industry CEOs extremely wealthy. Welcome back to another episode of Banter. I'm Max Frost, and here with me today, as always, is Matt Weinset. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Can't complain. We have a very interesting interview today about healthcare. We're joined by AEI's own Jim Capretta. Jim is a fellow here at AEI where he studies healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budgetary policy. Um, we cover a lot of different topics from pharmaceutical prices to healthcare premiums and comparing the U.S. healthcare system to Scandinavian and other ones. So we hope that you enjoy the conversation, and we certainly did. And without further ado, here is Jim Carpetta. Jim, thank you for coming on Banter. You're welcome. Glad to be with you guys. So there's not really a news hook right now about healthcare policy, but you did have an article in Clear Clear Policy earlier this month, I think, called Chasing Universal Coverage, which talks about how as of 2017, at least, there were 28 million Americans who were uninsured, which sounds like it's very bad, big number. But you break it down and actually doesn't seem quite as bad as the headline number says. So could you just break down for us, who are these 28 million uninsured Americans? Sure. Well, that number, first of all, comes from the Census Bureau. They do, of course, an annual assessment every year of health insurance enrollments, and that's a calendar year 2017 number. So it's a little bit old, and it could change. It may get worse. But for the moment, in 2017, the 28 million really had, I think, five categories. First being that there's a group of people who are eligible already for Medicaid and premium credits under the current law. Mm-hmm. Some of which were made, they were made eligible. Some of whom were made eligible by the Affordable Care Act, and that's about 15 million people or so. There's another. Four million or so, in rough terms, people who are already eligible for employer coverage. That is, they get offered an employer plan, but for any number of different reasons, haven't taken it. Maybe because they forgot, they didn't know about it, they, you know, a little bit of inertia, or maybe they declined it because they didn't want to pay the employee share of the premium. There's a third group, which is uh, people who are not eligible for an employer plan, but their incomes are too high to get subsidization under the Affordable Care Act in the individual market. These are people with incomes above four times the federal poverty line. So for a family of four, this is basically would be people with incomes of about, in rough terms, $100,000 or more. Okay. Okay, so that's pretty... So the, the argument there being they seem like they might have enough resources on their own to pay some premiums, but they don't. Yeah. Uh, the fourth category are undocumented uh, people in the country. So people who are here without proper documentation, are not eligible for premium credits under the Affordable Care Act or enrollment in Medicaid. And so they get ins- many of them, of course, get insurance because they work they, without proper documentation. Their employer doesn't know, and they give them health insurance, and so they're already getting health insurance. But a subset of them are here probably working and are not getting health insurance because they're not eligible for the direct subsidization. 
And then the last group would be the most sympathetic group. These would be people who are below the poverty line, uh, but they're in states that didn't expand Medicaid. So under the Affordable Care Act, they tried to push every state to go to 138% of the federal poverty line. That first, first of all, when they first enacted it, they wanted to make it mandatory for all the states. That was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So it became a voluntary decision on the state level. 14 states or so still are not have still have not expanded their Medicaid programs. And what that means in practice is that if you're in those states and your income is too high for Medicaid eligibility, but below 100% of the poverty line, you're not eligible for either Medicaid or the premium credits because the premium credits only start at 100% of the poverty line, not below. So they call it the sort of the coverage gap, and that's a couple of million people there. So I think of all the groups that you know probably need policy attention first, that would be the group. So you're saying that's a couple million people out of 330 yeah, million Americans. Exactly, yeah. So then that ends up being you know, really, really a small portion of the country that is not able to get health care. Right. Which then would imply that with the right policies, we could have nearly universal, even if those people still were not able to, you could still have nearly universal health care if everybody was wanted to do it. Right. So how, I mean, is it the right question to be asking? Should this whole question about universal health care, universal coverage, is that the right question to be asking? Or does it make sense to have some people who just are choosing not to take it? Yeah, those are good questions. The reason we wrote the article is that uh, even though you indicated maybe there's not a real news hook, I mean, there is a lot of talk right now about Medicare for all. And you, maybe you said that facetiously. Well, it's a pe- perpetual news hook. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> healthcare never goes away. But anyway, on the presidential campaign trail, they're talking about healthcare all the time right now, really in the context of, hey, we need universal coverage a la how other countries do it. And I think the the really important point to understand here is that these other countries achieve universal coverage by virtue of birth and residency. In other words, in the UK and Canada, there is no enrollment system, right, really. I mean, you're automatically enrolled in the National Health Service in the UK if you're born there and if you are there residing legally, okay? So you just are automatically given access to the health system under those conditions and also people that are traveling there temporarily. However, if you are there on a long-standing basis without proper legal status, they even exclude you from their health system. So I think the thing we point out in our article is if there was a census-like survey of the uninsured in the UK, it wouldn't actually be universal coverage. There'd be some small number of people who are there who are not insured by the NHS, but maybe that you know, the, the system doesn't really know it or recognize it. Yeah, so we'll put aside the sympathetic 2.5 million for now. The people that either are eligible or actually, yeah, we'll get to that in a second too. I'm, I'm curious about the people that have enough money to probably buy to pay premiums, but they don't have health care now. Should, is that a major problem for the U.S. system now or is it just – are they the type of people that maybe when they get sick, then they'll buy health insurance and it's really not a coverage issue we should be overly worried about? It's probably mostly the latter, okay, but it's possible – that some of them are struggling, you know, kind of middle to upper middle class people who have a lot of, you know, reasons why they can't buy health insurance easily and the options available to them are pretty bad. So they go on the exchange, they're not getting subsidized, and they say, wow, I can get a, you know, eight, ten thousand dollar you know, deductible plan and I have to pay, you know, $5,000 for it out of my own money. Yeah. And so it just looks like a bad option, so they don't get it. Yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, is there going to be a huge national 
you know, sympathy, you know, campaign on behalf of these kinds of families. I think right on the margins, just above 400 percent of the poverty line, they will be pretty sympathetic. But, you know, when you get to five, six hundred, seven hundred percent of the poverty line, probably not. And then the 15 million people that have access, but they just don't have it yet. I mean, if, if they get into a car wreck or something, I'm just curious, like if they get if, if they have to pay all these medical bills all, the, all of a sudden, can they just sign up for insurance then and then they'll be taken care of? Yeah, well, most of them can if they're, well, let's put it this way. The portion of them who are eligible for Medicaid yeah. and the Children's Health Insurance Program called CHIP, yeah. those people can sign up at any time. There's no time period when they're not eligible to sign up. For those people who are eligible for premium credits on the exchanges, they do have an annual open enrollment season. And so if they haven't gotten insurance and then something happens, they could remain uninsured until they're able to buy coverage during the open enrollment season. So that could be a risk that they've taken on. But it is short, and they would eventually be able to get coverage. Uh, so you know, it's unwise to take that risk, but some people do. So now what are the policy options? I need to discuss them in a couple of your articles. For eliminating these people who, you know, for the people who could have health care but don't, how do we get them into the healthcare system? You know, if they think maybe it's not in my interest, but the country as a whole wants them in the healthcare system, how do we do that? You know, the I think the shortest, fastest way is, honestly, really, the country has a choice here. You can either either go like Senator Sanders is describing and just do a, a non-enrollment universal coverage system like other countries do. You just sort of get rid of all this and say, hey, everybody's eligible. We're not going to bother to try to figure out how to sign you up or anything, you're just in the system, okay? That's one option. The other option is to look at who they are, go out and find them and put them into an insurance plan. And so if they're already eligible for Medicaid or the premium credits, we have to identify them probably through federal tax data mainly, share that with the states, and then have the states run automatic enrollment systems to put them into coverage. On the employer level, remember there's, you know, three, four million people who are eligible for an employer plan are not signed up yet. So we have to give probably employers the option to do the same for their own workers. Put them into a plan. If they want to opt out, they can. But there's lots of evidence that if you put people into coverage and then say opt out, most of them are not going to opt out. They usually say, oh, thank you. I'm glad you did that. I, you know, I just didn't bother to sign up. So I think placing the, you know, the uh, burden on somebody to opt out rather than opt in, in some cases, can really drive up enrollment numbers. Well, yeah. I Oh, well, I guess there's also the lots of conservative opposition to that. Or? Well, there's the people that say that's a sort of a paternalistic approach, right? Yeah. They they sort of say, you know, let's let these people make their own decisions, et cetera. And, you know, of course, I have a little bit of sympathy for that point of view. But on the other hand, there's lots of reasons why people are too busy, other priorities in life, trying to make ends meet, running around, basically healthy. And then someone says, you need to go sign up for Medicaid. And they say, well, I don't even know how to do that. What are you talking about? What do I got to do? There are probably language barriers in some circumstances. So there's a lot of reasons why this is. And also, it's a big country, right? We're talking about, you know, 15 million people out of, you know, 70 million or so that are already eligible for Medicaid. So in any federal program, you're going to miss some people. And if we want universal coverage without reverting to a non-enrollment system, you got to go out and get the people and put them in. Yeah, you hear this argument a lot for organ donors, making that an opt-out process where everybody's an organ donor yeah. unless they opt out. And I understand the paternalistic arguments against that more than the health care ones, I guess. Are, are a lot of these people people that if you sign them up, if you roll them automatically would be grateful? Or are, there peop are they people who 
consciously say, no, I do not want to pay these premiums. Very few of them will be in the latter category. Almost all of them will be in the former category where they're not out of health insurance out of some ideological objection. They're out of health insurance. They're not enrolled in health insurance because of the hassle factors and other priorities in life. You know, they're, they're just dealing with other things that have a higher priority to them than filling out the form or going down to the local office or whatever it is that requires them to get insurance. And some of them may not even really know they're uninsured in some sense. Yeah. You know? Th- this relates very much to me. I think AEI just switched health care systems and I haven't gone through the trouble of activating my new HSA card yet because it's a pain and I don't want to do it. And if they did if they did that automatically for me, I'd be very thankful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So the other thing you mentioned is enticing more the other 14 or so states to expand Medicaid. And yeah. are the... I'm curious, are the people that would oppose you on that? Because you, you offer a compromise where instead of going up to the 138% level, they can just do it up to 100%. Yeah. Are the people more against that the the Democrats who might say, well, no, 100% is not nearly sufficient, or the Republican states that don't want to expand it at all? Or are they both against it? Well, there'd be a little bit of both. I think the Democratic argument would be it'd be hard to extend this option just to the states that have not expanded. In other words, if you made a national rule saying you can go to 100% of the poverty line, you'd have to offer it probably to all the states. Yeah. Their concern is that some of the states that went to 138 will then go back down to 100 yeah. and push these people into the exchanges instead of Medicaid. And they think Medicaid for these kinds of families is a better way to go. Yeah. Okay, So they, they worry about that. On the Republican side, yeah, I think the objection mainly is, you know, Medicaid's already too big. Why do we want to make it even, you know— not not as big as the ACA, but still big, you know, and so they, they object on those grounds. So like you said, during for the already for the Democratic nomination campaign, um, it's a huge topic. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, when Trump was running for president, he said, I can't remember what the adjective was, but some kind of best. Fabulous. Fabulous. Be- beautiful, maybe. I don't know. That he was going to best ever. Yeah. So what are you seeing now from conservative aside from, you know, repealing ACA, which is an ongoing you know, talking point. What else are you seeing from conservatives about this? Well, honestly, I'd say that they there's well, there's two things that are going on. One one would be that uh, the the administration in their own budget uh, sort of endorsed this idea that was first put forward by Senators Lindsey Graham and uh, Bill Cassidy and uh, uh, former Senator Heller uh, and, and also Ron Johnson in the Senate that would try to take the funding that's in the ACA for the Medicaid expansion and the premium credits that are available to people through the exchanges, take that amount of funding and put it into block grants to the states instead of running it through Medicaid and the exchanges. And then tell the states, we're going to give you more authority to design whatever kind of program you want and let them sort of figure out what to do with it. So I'd call this sort of the federalist option, right, which is attractive to some Republicans in Congress and some in the administration because it allows them to kind of step back from all the messiness Mm -hmm. of designing a health system and say, our big idea is pass the money down to the states and let them, they're closer to the people, let them run it and figure it out. Now, my basic beef with this is that, okay, you then have to imagine what would the states do on the ground that would be different from the funding flows that are available to them through the Affordable Care Act. I tried to just even imagine what it might look like. And it's very hard to conceive of something that would be materially different. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so they'd end up probably just recreating and using the structure that was in the ACA and putting the money they get from the federal government into the same subsidy structures because building something entirely different would be massively complicated and expensive. And, you know, how else are you going to get money to people uh, through like in an exchange-like system unless you give it to them through the federal tax system? So there's, it's really curious to me that I, I don't see this being a big divergence from current law and I don't see it being attractive enough to, to pass in any event. So I think that's the big idea they've latched onto. I just would say for us as part of this discussion, I don't think it really works. And so they're, they're sort of floundering a little bit, which is why you had this whole debate two weeks ago where the president you know, said, we're going to you know, continue to push this lawsuit overturning the ACA. And when it's overturned, we're going to have a great plan. <laughs> And then, you know, some of us thought to ourselves, well, didn't you already endorse something in the budget? Was, isn't that your plan, <laughs> right? And so there's a lot of confusion about whether where they stand on all this still because in some ways they, don't, they haven't fully embraced what they've offered in, in their own budget plan. Yeah. Real quick on the lawsuit, so about the trying to yeah. deem Obamacare unconstitutional. It's my understanding, don't, even most right-leaning ACA opponents think that the lawsuit's not going to go anywhere, or is that wrong? I would say that's basically right. Okay. Yeah. So we're not we're not going to have some deus ex machina come in from the Supreme Court and, and get rid of it. No. Where do things stand now, though? Because didn't they already kind of gut the individual mandate with the ACA? So where does does that mean the law is quasi-repealed, and, and how does this affect the healthcare system? Yeah, that's interesting. We've There have been a number of things repealed, that being the most important one. They also repealed this thing called the Independent Payment Advisory Board, IPAB, that was in there. A number of different requirements that were imposed on employers and taxes. And so there's, a, there's been some repeal going on, sort of piecemeal and one by one. But, of course, the individual mandate was the most important one. And, of course, that's what triggered the second lawsuit. Yeah. Right. Because the sever- severability, or- the severability. Right. Because in the Supreme Court in the last round, the argument was made by the Obama administration that you couldn't pull out various aspects of it, because if you did it, uh, you know, it would fall apart. And so you had to have, uh, you know, one with the other. And so now the individual mandate's gone. And so the argument in the legal case is, doesn't that mean that the the rest of it is? you know, unconstitutional on the grounds that it was tied to the individual mandate. So, uh, you know, we'll see. I really doubt that'll get much legs. But uh, in terms of where it all stands, I'd say that, you know, the, the law, 95% of it is still there. It's probably going to bump along like it always has bumped along because the subsidy structure is big enough to entice a group of people of 8 to 10 million, maybe a little more, to be enrolled in the exchanges even if you don't have the individual mandate. Mm. And so that's enough to probably sustain the program without the mandate. So, yeah, but and sorry, to bring it back to kind of the switch tax here, back to the Democrat platform. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, no, you don't match it, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so first of all, are, when all the Democrats talk about single payer, do they have the same idea in mind? Do the different candidates, are they talking about the same kind of program? Yeah. Um, and then what would this look like? Right. So uh, on the campaign trail, the presidential campaign, they mainly are talking about the Sanders plan, right? Because the other leading Democratic candidates have, have pretty much endorsed his plan in the Senate, especially those who are senators, like Senator Warren and Senator Harris. Uh, but there are different single-payer plans beyond the Sanders plan. And I say the main you know, competing version is the one in the House, 
uh, by uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, and and there's a hundred some co-sponsors on that bill in the House, and it's even more aggressive than the Sanders bill. Hmm. It would basically move the country over a two-year period toward a fully government-run insurance system. Everybody in the same plan. Nobody pays premiums. Nobody pays cost sharing. You don't pay anything at the point of service when you get care. The government uh, organizes a way of paying the providers when you use services that probably, although they say they may move off of it, is modeled on Medicare's payment systems. So Medicare is a very complicated regulatory system for paying hospitals and doctors and all the rest. They would sort of import that into both versions of the bill, pay for long-term care, dental care, vision care. I mean, it's a pretty big package of things. And basically do away with private insurance in the process. So you just saw everybody would be in the same nationalized system. That's the idea. Um, so it does have a certain simplicity to it. Does single payer necessarily imply the end of, you know, employer-provided health insurance or private health insurance? Or can you have both? Uh, the strict definition of single payer would imply the getting rid of those. So you would have no employer plan. You'd have no private insurance. You just have the government being the one who, when someone uses a medical service, pays for that service through some kind of administrative process. Um, that's single payer. There are different versions, though, of nationalized systems that have private insurance as part of the model. So there are countries like Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, Singapore, and a few others where there is private insurance administering essentially a regulated public plan. Yeah. And uh, the U.S. could go in that direction, which would be different from the Sanders approach. What about the so-called public option, which I think maybe Senator Klobuchar, who I think is a candidate yes. now. Yes. And then I, wasn't that also a debate during the, the original ACA debate? There it was. argument about including a public option. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, honestly, I think this is the this is the option the Democratic Party is probably going to gravitate to eventually. So they'll have a big national debate as part of the primaries about Medicare for all. But in practical reality, it'd be hard to pass Medicare for all for a lot of different reasons. But the one you bring up, the public option, would be a lot easier to pass and would be sort of a slower backdoor way of trying to reach the same destination. What it would mean is instead of getting rid of everything, just create a new option, perhaps starting on the exchanges that says, which is what they proposed in 2009 and 10, but it didn't make it into the final bill. Put something on the exchanges that says, hey, the government will run. There's private insurance plans you can pick from, but the government will also offer a plan, and it will be uh, the same terms, really, as the private insurance plans, the same benefit package, the same premium subsidies eligible to people, but they have to pay a premium beyond the subsidies they're eligible for. So it would compete with the private plans on the exchanges for enrollment. And importantly, the key is that they could that public plan would pay the providers of care, the hospitals and doctors, based on Medicare rates. So instead of having to negotiate, like the private insurer has got to go to the hospitals and doctors and say, we want terms with you. What, what do you want to be paid when you take care of patients? And they have to write these complicated contracts. The public plan wouldn't do that. It would just say, we're going to pay you what Medicare pays you, which is below what private insurance pays. Yeah. And so their premiums could be competitive. Okay, so this is the one I think to keep your eye on because come 2021, if there's a Democratic president and a you know maybe not a Democratic Congress but at least a House, I think this would be the kind of thing they would really try to run with. 
Yeah, and a second ago you gave the examples of Switzerland, Singapore, Germany, um, of countries that have kind the of... The Netherlands. Never forget the Netherlands. the Netherlands in honor of Stan Voiger. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, the, the, these are all places. I, the Netherlands in particular, I know lots of Americans that have spent time there, ended up in the hospital. They all come back and they say... You know, it's the greatest place on earth. <laughs> like, what are your friends um, doing to end up in the hospital? Uh, you know, which, they, which which country are you talking about? Uh, Netherlands. 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 Oh yeah. Um, but you know, Switzerland, Singapore. These are places that are people speak countries. very highly of yeah. their healthcare systems. Yeah. They're also not the same. You know, it's not. You don't you don't think of like Singapore and say this is some kind of socialist you know no. economy. So is there some kind of middle road like that? For is that are there any of these systems ones the U.S. should try to emulate? Or is, you know, just by the size alone, the style of the economy, is that not possible? Or is it not even worth looking at? Well, no, I think it's definitely worth thinking about and looking at and trying to understand it. The, you know, these are complicated things for a lot of reasons. One would be that most of these countries where there's some attractiveness to it, it's a fairly, they're fairly small countries, fairly homogenous countries relative to the United States. We're a big, rambunctious, heterogeneous country, okay? There's lots of different things going on here that are not going on in all these other countries. Singapore is teeny tiny, of course, right? So, uh, and Switzerland is just, you know, a different deal in terms of size and scale. So it's it's quite a different matter to try to think of putting the U.S. all into a, a similarly heavily regulated system. I'd say the second thing is there's a reason why our system performs. There's lots of measures and metrics of how our system performs relative to others that would show we underperform. Many of the, that, a lot of that data is uh, conflated with other things going on in society. Like we have other social indicators, which mean we have, you know, poorer health. We have a lot more trauma coming into our hospitals that, than these other countries for a variety of reasons, including violence. Uh, we have more car accidents. We have more alcohol and drug-related incidents going into our facilities. All of these add to the expense of the American healthcare system, they get reflected in national data that aren't really driven by the health system itself, mm -hmm. okay? Now, having said all that, it is undoubtedly true that something that's a little bit more organized and regulated with the government stepping in to limit pricing under certain circumstances is likely to be less expensive than the U.S. system. The question is, what's the expense of that? When, when you have a regulated system with price limitations, by definition, it affects usually a supply side yeah. question. So you're going to have less supply and maybe lower quality supply, depending on the circumstances of how it's implemented. And even in the very high performing countries, there's a little bit of that going on. Okay. And how much of that would the U.S. tolerate? You know, would, would we allow waiting? Um, and I think a third element is political system understanding. Like when you have a system where Get it, you got to put a nationalized system in the context of American political life, yeah. you know, with our, you know, our checks and balance system at the federal level, polarization, uh, lots of political differences. Um, it would it be easy to run a system like that well at the national level, right? Mm -hmm. Or do we need a little bit more of a diverse plan to allow for all the different kind of priorities people have? And so I, I, those are some of the reasons why thinking about this is worthwhile doing, but don't jump too fast. I'm going to make us talk about Singapore just a little bit more. Oh. I have in front of me an op-ed uh, from Ross Douthat in 2017 okay. called Make America Singapore. Oh. And this was this was at the height of the ACA repeal yeah. uh, fiasco, where he basically says, I mean, while Singapore has differences, obviously, 
if there is a coherent conservative vision of what healthcare should be, Singapore is as close as you can get to it. It's they have high deductibles. It's I mean it looks like basically they cover catastrophic coverage, but then beyond that, you're usually paying for stuff out of your own pocket, which increases price transparency, which should bring down costs. Yeah. Do you, I mean is that is that the conservative vision? Kind of. Yeah, I think that it sort of is. Healthcare is so complicated, but, but ba- let me just try this with you because this is really important at the top to understanding why costs are an issue and how to think about how to get it better under control. There are really only two basic theories for what could be done to manage costs better in our kind of system Mm -hmm. or in Singapore's kind of system. One is where the consumer vests a premium to a plan, an HMO, and the HMO is in charge of managing costs for that consumer and all the other consumers that have enrolled in the HMO. The HMO then goes out and works with the hospitals and the doctors, uses a lot of data, a lot of management skills, a lot of practice, you know, a lot of practical business know-how to say, let's run this a little bit more efficiently. Let's run our hospitals more efficiently. Let's run the care process more efficiently. So you get the HMO is involved in trying to run it better, basically, and drive down costs. Okay, that's one theory. This is the technocratic th- approach. It would be a tech. It would be called. You know, this is something we put under the heading of managed competition. Okay, mm-hmm. it's a long history with its school of thought in American healthcare. The second th- thought is a little bit like Singapore in that article and HSAs and individual autonomy, where the consumer themselves is saying, "I need some services." Where do I go to get the best value for what I, you know, what I'm going to miss? Some of it's my own money. So I want high value, just like I do when I go out and buy a car or, you know, some some home improvement or, you know, education for my kids for that matter. Yeah. You know, you do a little research. You try to figure out what's the best value for what you have to spend. The theory being if we did that in healthcare, we'd get better results. More pressure on the supply side to be efficient, lower prices. There are problems with both of these, and they, they run imperfectly for a lot of different reasons because of political problems, policy problems, market problems. Let me just say on the individual side, it's all true that these things can work, but in Singapore and elsewhere, they also regulate the prices to some degree, okay? So it's not really totally an unregulated system. There's a lot of regulation that limits what the consumers have to deal with. I'd say also that, remember, most healthcare is going to be above the deductible, no matter how high it is. So the real big expenses in American healthcare or Singaporean healthcare or any other healthcare is when you have a patient that has cancer, a traumatic event, they're in the hospital for two weeks, uh, they're being treated in an outpatient clinic for something for you know six months for cancer, a year and a half, or they have a chronic condition that requires ongoing intervention. Um, for many of these types of patients, they're going to blow through their deductible no matter what. So at that point, they don't, their self-interest is much reduced yeah. on cost and price. So then you think, well, could a fully autonomous consumer-driven system really be the answer if that's the case? And, you know, the answer is probably not, okay? It would probably end up having to be a mix of the two to some degree, okay? Yeah. And for all of these reasons, it's complicated, and, and that's why I... I Sort of present it that way. Well, I are we out of, are we out of time? We're, we're running close to the end. Well, that's that's unfortunate. Oh, do we have time for one more? Yeah, let's just do oh, it. I'll ask we'll, another. Let's okay. have another one. Okay, yeah. So last last question here before we run out of time. Drug prices. What are conservatives talking about now, in particular, to lower drug prices? Again, the president has talked about this a pretty good amount. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a huge talking point um, for the Democrats. 
right? Let's not conflate, of course, what the president says necessarily with conservative policy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, some it may or may not be depending on the circumstances and issues and so on. But the administration, pushed by the president, so he gets credit for that for sure, is trying to figure out what to do. And this uh, Department of Health and Human Services under the Secretary Alex Azar has put out a number of things to try to move the system in a certain direction. I'd say there are really two that are big and being debated extensively at the moment. One is to get rid of rebating as a way of discounting in uh, pharmaceutical pricing. So what happens today is you get aggregated consumers in an insurance plan that they then hire a, a what's called a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM to negotiate with the drug companies to get discounts on prices for all the consumers in that group. The PBM does this mainly in most circumstances by extracting a rebate out of the manufacturers. So they say if volume hits a certain target in terms of use of their drug, they will pay a dollar amount back to the PBM after the consumption of the drug as a rebate on the total cost. Um, So they get big discounts through these rebates, but the secretary and the administration generally is making the argument that, yeah, but that's at the expense of higher list prices. So the drug companies are pushing up their list prices knowing they're going to have to give these big rebates to the PBMs. And when you're a consumer, especially in the Medicare context, it's possible that your cost sharing that you got to pay is tied to the list price. Not possible. It is tied to the list price, not to the after rebate price. Okay? So they're making the argument we got to get rid of rebating and just let the pricing be the competitive market bring discounting in directly into the pricing, and that'll benefit everybody. The problem with this is that, well, if you get rid of rebating, will the prices come down by an equal or larger amount? Uh In other words, it'll only be beneficial to consumers in the aggregate if after the rebates are eliminated, the net price of the list prices come down by even more than the rebate amounts. I'm very skeptical that that will occur. I think they'll come down, but probably not by the full amount of the rebates that are going on today. At which point, the net effect of this is, yes, some consumers will benefit, but overall, (laughs) there will be higher revenue to the drug companies, not lower. Okay, Okay. That's one big thing that's going on. Second one is, in the Medicare context again, HHS is is, is putting out uh, feelers about the beginning stages of a regulation to start incorporating into pricing ceilings international prices for the same products. So this is a big change in policy. It would be a lot of uh, controversy associated with it because the pricing in these other countries is often not a market-driven price, but just a regulated, you know, imposed price, frankly, by a lot of governments. And so, of course, this is something that manufacturers are very, very much against. And so, yeah, that's out there as another regulatory proposal to try to bring pricing discipline to the Part B side of Medicare. So those are two, I think, big things that are going on. Beyond that, lots of stirring on the Hill. I'd say the Republicans haven't coalesced around anything coherent yet, uh, but they may. the Democrats are certainly trying to press um, arbitration as a way of trying to hold down prices. That is, the, the, uh, the manufacturer says, here's what price I want to charge. The insurer says, maybe Medicare says, this is what we want to pay you. And then it goes to an arbitrator to decide, you know, what the amount should be. So that's an idea that's out there. Anyway, those are the kinds of things they're looking at. And how, last thing, how much of a risk is there? I know we keep saying last thing. How much of a risk is there with this, though, of just 
suppressing innovation if the if they can't charge as high of prices? Well, of course, that's the the issue. I mean, the thing in drugs drug pricing is that you have to understand that the the, the pricing is what sends a signal to the future investor on the next product, right? So they really get their money through capital from investment, you know, markets. And those investors want to get a kind of a risk-adjusted rate of return. This is a kind of a risky industry. Yeah. And they say, look, if I put my money into pharmaceutical development, I'm going to, you know, get eight, you know, eight losers and maybe one or two winners. And uh, they need to balance out so that I make a pretty good rate of return on across the whole 10, you know? Yeah. And so... That's the, the that's the challenge, and a lot of these other countries are not really factoring that into their calculation. They're they're pushing down their prices to marginal costs, not taking into account. Hey, we need to send signals to develop the next product. Well, they rely on the U.S. innovation mainly, right? Yeah, the U.S. is the leader both in prices and innovation, and that's not a accident. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that, we'll have to leave it there. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. And as always, thank you all for listening. If you're not already, please consider subscribing to Banter on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, (laughs) whatever it is, wherever you can find us. I don't know where we are. iTunes is the best. And uh, leave us a five-star rating and review, and we'll try to read it on the show. I've noticed some of you are listening on Ricochet's The Website, which is fine, but it would be more convenient for you and better for us if you could subscribe to our feed on iTunes and leave us a review there. Instead, we're getting all these very nice, wonderful reviews on Ricochet instead, like the one from Terrace about our interview with Tim Carney, who says, terrific interview. Thank you, Terrace. But, uh, Terrace, you made my day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Terrace. And if you like that interview, we have a great show coming next week. We're interviewing Michael Brennan Doherty, senior editor at National Review, who just came out with a new book, or coming out with a new book on April 30th, I should say, called My Father Left Me Ireland. I've already finished reading it, and it's uh, really beautiful, and we look forward to our conversation with him, and we hope you tune in then. We'll see you next week. What else is new, Max? Not much else to say. Not much else to say. We'll cut this out. <laughs> you couldn't sound more bored than tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a five-star review, and... Uh, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs>